I wanted to start off with unpacking addiction because I I sort of come to notice that as a community, as the Muslim community, we don't really understand addiction for what it truly is. Mm. So how would you define an addiction, generally speaking? Well, let me ask you first, what's your understanding of addiction? What does that mean? If I say, hey, Ben, I'm addicted to, uh, you know, to, to watching cartoons, what would be your understanding of me making that claim to you? I would say that what that means is someone cannot keep themselves from watching that cartoon. They're always thinking about it. They are spending time watching it, whether it's late at night or early in the morning. And that's what they're just dedicating mm-hmm. their right. life to, essentially. It's There's just also, in a sense, another word for everything you just described. If you think about it, you're adoring something. It's always on your mind. You're a conscientious of it. It dictates and motivates your life. You know, most of your existence revolves around it. You serve it. You know, that's worship. Right. So one one interesting framing from a Islamic psychological sense is addiction is a form of idolatry that exists in the nafs or the self. It's a it's an idol that has grown as a you know tumor in your personality complexes. That is something you now worship and struggle, and it, and it literally will compete with Allah subhanahu wa taala. Like that's one of the signs, you know, right? So if I, so for example, I hear the adhan five times a day and I don't get up because my cartoon is too damn good. Guess what I worship, right? Guess what I'm, even though I'm being reminded of God, I'm like, yeah, tuning that out. This cartoon is awesome. Can't stop watching, right? That's, you know, it's like a spell, but in more kind of psychological terms, it's when a person is essentially consumed by something, and wants to continuously consume it as a coping mechanism, right? So it's a way that it's something that addictions are usually coping mechanisms gone, you know, horribly bad or south. Like it's just too bad, you know, like the person who smokes a cigarette like once a week when they're super stressed versus and then it becomes like three packs a day. Like that's become right an addiction. It's a dependency. It's usually high levels of in you know the drug itself whether it's the food or watching something or pornography or nicotine or and typically the person develops that dependency or need and it becomes a go-to for escapism for numbing themselves from difficulties or challenges of life Uh, it's also a thing we use for pleasure for celebration you know don't always use it when things are bad it's like sometimes you use it when things are good because it, whatever our addictions are, it gives us a sense of pleasure, right? That helps us survive. So that's one way to understand it as well. You know, the pornography addiction is something that's not really addressed often. It's talked about, but it's not fully understood. And what I what I feel is that the epidemic of the pornography addiction, because essentially it is an epidemic. Um, it's so easily accessible that it's just almost assumed 
it's almost as if that there's not much can that, that, there's not much that can be done about it, but also at the same time, it's like, what can we do about it? Right. Because for parents, it's like, I want to give my child the smartphone, but I want them to use it as a form of communication. Right. Mm-hmm. On that same, in that same breath, this phone, this device, this smartphone or iPad, even if you will, is also a gateway to pornography. So how does a person supposed to, how are a parent rather supposed to balance that, uh, you know, that there, that sort of thing of, well, this is an iPhone for communication, mm-hmm. but. Well, the first thing I'll say, bro, is, you know, I'm not that old, but I feel old. Uh, when I was in my 20s and I used to live at home, my first year I was going to college, I would take the train into Boston, the commuter rail from the suburbs. And the, I remember, dude, the first year was I would use the cell, I would use a payphone from the train station when I got home to call my mom, be like, hey, can you come pick me up? Then I got my first cell phone, which had like that limited credit, which I would use to simply communicate around, you know, timings and pickups because I was using the public transportation in and out of the city, right? So if you want communication, you can get communication without access to the internet. That's actually still possible, right? We assume that like our kid has to have an iPhone. That's a whole other, you know, presumption all in and of itself. Like I'm not going to give my kids any iPhones till they're 18, dude, 16. I'm going to try, right? But there's always going to be that, jerk in class whose mom and dad got him an iPhone when he's eight, right? And so even if your kids don't have it, there's someone who's going to have one that can expose them to things. So that's also another threat to, I think, what you're talking about. But to answer that question, if you want your kids to just have communication with you, you can accomplish that without taking the risk of all that other access. Because why else would they need, unless your kid is Ubering home from high school, right? Like, why else do they need all that other stuff, really? If they're kids, it's like you don't give a kid their their. How many parents are going to let their kids get their license and have their own car at age sixteen? Probably not a lot, right? Because they have to earn some level of responsibility before number one, we feel comfortable them driving a lot. Number two, driving one of our cars. Number three, a car that I would spend my money and buy for them, right? So I think we have to think in the same way when it comes to iPhones and technology. It shouldn't just be a default just because we're becoming a more digital era. Doesn't mean you know, just drown your kids in it without any guidance. Because the reality is, like what happens in school, you can't control 90% of what activity will happen in the digital world once you give a kid a portal to it. You just can't. Even with your walls and you can use softwares to block stuff, right? And these things are becoming better, but there's loopholes too to some of these things. Like young kids will find ways, right? What are your thoughts about my reflections then? The whole idea of that kids will always find a way is like, man, that's just, it, it's so true because kids will always find a way to, to look or watch something, you know? Um, and that's where it happens the most. It's at school, like kids exposed to pornography, usually at school. And it's usually like boys, right? Um, like some kid in class, he's like, Hey, look at this. And like shoves it in your face. Right. 
And you're like, yeah. whoa, what did I just look at? <laughs> yeah. It's sad, dude, because that's sucks. It actually breaks my heart, like just thinking about my own son right now, who's this pure, beautiful kid, you know, five, six year old, years old. And very soon, some jerk is going to probably do that. And my son won't know how to process it. He won't know how to bring it up and talk to me about it. And it's going to be this thing that he carries. And then puberty hits a few years later, right? Mm -hmm. So you're, I mean, it is scary. And we ask a lot to protect us. Dude, my, my first experience with pornography, it was a friend who exposed it. It wasn't me who sought it out, right? And most of the time I was able to access it, right, was through friends, right? When I was at their house or somebody had cable or somebody had a video, like it's always through peers, right? Now, today, though, you don't need that. There's plenty of kids who have no friends who are on their computer all day finding whatever they want to find. Yeah, which is that, that's how worse. that's how, and that's how it was back in, I guess our day, if you will, that you go to a friend's house, and you know he's like, hey, look at this, and he shows you on his computer or his laptop. But nowadays, it's like, you just have it in your pocket. It's like it went from like our it went from like our friend's computer desk at their house to now <laughs> it's just in our pocket, and we carry it with it. We carry this, you know, in our pocket everywhere we go. I wanted to ask, what age do our kids typically expose to pornography? Oh, I mean, I don't know what everyone's age is, but I can only speak from the experience of, let's say, you know, hundreds of clients I've worked with, and 99% of them have been male um, in, in regards to pornography and sexual addictions. And I would say, you know, the range typically is, um, you know, generally, it's going to be anywhere between certainly 10 and 14 is like the first phase of exposure. But I would add to it a sexual um, activization, you know, like like a, the person awakens to their sexuality, right? Like they they get erections, they may start masturbating, like all of that is about waking up to the sexualness of your being, right? Before that, you're, that's not something you're tapping into as a creature, right? And so it's a big thing. It just, poof, like all of a sudden comes into your evaluation of everything around you and yourself. It's like now there's the sexuality dimension, you know? So a lot of people, it's between 10 and 14. Exceptions, of course, are people who are more sheltered. They don't get exposed to it till 15, 16. Dude, I knew a kid once, mashallah, he didn't even know what masturbation was till he was 16 years old. He didn't know what it was and he never saw anything porn or any of that. Right. That may be more rare, but when I was young, growing up the master, there were still a good percentage of young people. They like, they really had no clue about some of the stuff that other boys on the basketball court could be joking about. Right. And then there's exceptions where people were unfortunately abused or, ex, you know, sexually oppressed in some way. And they may have been exposed to sexual content, pornography or abuse at a younger age at eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, and most of the time, it's somebody within the family who's abusing them, oppressing them, or exposing them. So it's a big brother, it's an uncle, it's an aunt, it's a sister, it's whatever. It's somebody around them. So you're seven, eight, nine, five, four. Things can happen to you that you can be exposed to things, right? That's also possible. <clears throat> but typically, I'd say for males, at least, it's my, from the cases I know, it's between 10 and 14 where sexuality gets activated and there's if they, they start engaging it but at this time. And certainly, I'm sure there's a spike statistically 
once you hit puberty, right? So what would be some signs for someone to identify for themselves if they have a pornography addiction? Because there's, there's the, you could say, you could give an argument that if you're watching porn once a month, you're not necessarily an addict. You could just be a porn user, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's a great question. Um, I think there's two kind of aspects that people tend to look at it. There's the, the qual- quantitative route or measurement and then the qualitative, you know, um, I think that naturally when quantity increases, the qualitative attachment will take a shift, right? So you can't argue, for instance, you smoke 10 cigarettes a day or watch 10 hours of YouTube a day or jerk off to porn 10 times a day and you're not addicted. It doesn't have a powerful qualitative attachment to your soul or naps or self, right? It's like that's, no. Usually quantity tells us a lot about because something you're exposing and conditioning yourself with is something that you're constantly obsessing about, right? Which means you're consumed by it and you want to consume it. One of the variables of being an addict, right? So um, if we use that as a definition, then yeah, sure. If a person uses porn once a month or once every three months, right? You could even say once a week, right? Even though I would say that's like, the maximum, right? You could you could argue like, like again, someone who's 22 is very attractive young man, gets women actually in his college saying, come to my room and bang this. And they're using porn once a week to stay sane and not commit sin. Like that person is actually a survivor, right? They're using it as a way to like, I know what I can do, but I have some semblance of taqwa with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I'd rather do this lesser evil. <clears throat> So in a context like this, that's not, you know, it's like, that's why meaning in what's associated with the person for what they're doing is very important. And that's usually what I'm exploring with people, right? It's like people just show up and say, you know, I watch porn X amount of times, but then when we understand the story, the qualitative and the uh, meaningful associations tell us a lot about the the quantitative patterns, if that makes sense. Yeah. Would you consider pornography one of the pressing issues for men or young boys? Absolutely. I think um, it's definitely one of the things I think about a lot as a father, you know, for my son, because I know what I went through. And I know the age he's in is completely digital. Like, I actually saw the transition, you know, when the internet was still like, you know, the dialogue, you know, I got to see all that. And even when you wanted to look at porn at that time, it's like, it wasn't this extremely fast download. And look, today we're dealing with a portal into the demonic world that we've never had before, I would say as a human race, right? And I talk about this a bit in my podcast on the jinn, but the jinn we know are made of a form of energy, and energy, all computers and chips and all this is, the digital world is simply a, a world that's melting and um, able to transfer all this energetic information. And the jinn can maybe access and create their own portals. I mean, we look at pornography, guys. It's, it's a collective libido of the planet. 
Think about that. You and I right now could have access to the collective libido of the human and demonic world right now. Just like that. It's like a genie in a lamp, dude. Rub it. I want all of it. And it's right there, dude. Right on the screen. Right? It's really crazy. And I know for a fact that in the world of pornography, they even now have introduced demonic creatures, right? With their animes and just weird categories, right? And it's like, what the hell does this demonic creature have to do with this, you know, Barbie looking doll, right? And it's like, but it's just, it's all coming together. You know what I mean? And, and things are getting worse. So I think it's a big threat because of accessibility, because of the extreme range of the collective libido manifestations. And what I mean by that is, all of our sexual repressed urges and wishes and desires and dreams and fantasies are freaking out there right now for you to watch. And if you've never thought of it, somebody else has. And it, there's crap you've never thought about that people are fantasizing and it's becoming normalized categories, right? It's just getting more and more and more and more extreme, right? And so that's very dangerous because you literally can drown in the curiosity and the sea of hunting for the new dopamine rush, right? When it comes to pornography, because it does have a chemical um, impact on you. That's why people do what they do. It's for pleasure. And pleasure is experienced through releases of dopamine and serotonin and so forth, right? And certainly forgetting about whatever negative crap you were feeling before you took on your drug. So it is very scary. It's very dangerous. It's accessible because it's free because everything is free, right? When it comes to every category, everything, there's no non-category that you have to pay for now. Like you can find anything for free, right? Um, it's, <clears throat> it's so damaging to our human psychology. And if we are people of, you know, religion and spiritual um, motivation, it just, it causes damage that uh, again, I don't, I don't know if any other generation before us is ever going to experience something like this. And it's only going to get more sophisticated with virtual reality and deeper immersion. I mean, just think about it, guys. It starts with like we had computers that were as thick as fridges. Now we're getting thin phones and tablets. And eventually we're going to wear the damn thing and it's going to be a huge helmet. And then it's going to become literally sleeker than my glasses. It'll become like, you know, Cyclops from X-Men, just a band metallic band I put around and I can just immerse into a digital world, right? A world that isn't real, but I can literally create my gen, you know, now not to say that those things won't be useful for beneficial things like surgery across the planet. I can have that amazing doctor in Japan who's specializes in that one thing, be able to, you know, help someone in New York city. That's awesome. Right. We want to use things like this for the benefit of humankind. But remember, everything has that double-edged sword, right? Even the Quran can be used for destructive, horrible things in the world or to justify it, right, as a motivator for people. So it is very scary, man. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I think the only way that it's you can really avoid it is you, if you really want to avoid it is like you move to a country that you can't access it, like Iceland, or Saudi Arabia, even though there's loopholes probably, but still at a federal level, they're like, we're not letting our, our society be 
damaged by this. Like that's how some people think about it. Yeah, I remember Iceland being one of the countries that had banned pornography. They put a ban on pornography, which I find interesting because we don't talk about pornography the same way we would talk about like heroin use or opioid use because those drugs like pornography, they also release the chemical dopamine, right? So why is it? Why is the case that as a society, we don't talk about porn addictions like we do with heroin or opioid addiction? Well, it's all historical framing, man. You know, why, why, you know, it's like alcohol is so causes statistically so much damage health wise, car accidents, you name it, but we see it as acceptable over, let's say cannabis. So it's just the framing of people, right? It's the history. Porn isn't seen as a direct threat like cocaine or crack or whatever, because it's like, dude, it's sex. You're looking at something on the internet. You're not touching anybody. Like you're watching something like this is healthy. This, you know, maybe it helps your marriage. Like it's all about how you frame it. Remember the way you make meaning of things and associate and connect things based on your conditioning as a person determines how you see reality. Right. That's most people's case, dude. Like you can't, most people don't assume or expect that they know anything that you know. Don't. Right. It's like you have no idea what their framing is and their condition. So that's definitely one big reason. But I would say that, alhamdulillah, certainly in the last 10 years, you know, um, definitely from the Christian community, but even just from the psychological mental health community, you know, they've uh, shown more and more data to strongly suggest like this is a serious health risk and problem. Right. It, It can affect people physically over time. It affects you certainly emotionally and mentally. It's like any other drug. It's like you you can't you can't live on um, high surges of certain hormones or, or biochemistry in your body that it's not designed to produce all the time, right? That's just going to wear. It's like driving your car in 100 miles an hour every day. Even you know it doesn't you know you're going to wear it down much faster than it needs to be. Have there been these major organizations like the WHO? that have declared pornography as a public health issue or any other major organizations? Uh, You tell me, do you know? I don't know about the WHO, but it does seem that in these sort of circles of mental health that it, they are seeing that pornography is an issue for people. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, statistically, the data suggests that pornography is a real, it's having a real impact on our psychosocial practical life, right? Because for instance, if you have, let's say a thousand new couples who are doing marriage counseling, and pornography is at the core of their problem, that's data that therapists or mental health around the world are going to be aware of, like, wow, porn keeps coming up, right? In other words, it's a, it's a problem. Right. It might even be more of a just as much of a problem as alcohol, if that's a problem. Right. The point is, is it's a new variable that does cause complications for people. Um, I mean, I've had a few, you know, a handful of parents just this year be like our son and one, I think once or twice our daughter. Right. It's about their sexuality. 
you know, whether it's sexual fluidity, confusion, pornography exposure, usually they're connected. Peers, of course, have a lot to do with it. Where you live has a lot to do with it. Like I've had more, for instance, situations, cases where kids are dealing with sexual fluidity more so in California, right? Statistically than any other state, just from my own, you know, sample. Right? Because the culture and the context influences the type of challenges the Muslim youth or families will likely deal with. Right? Well, you get that in um, Georgia, Mississippi, Tennessee, Virginia. I don't know. Probably not as much. You know, because the culture, even the American culture there, is a different flavor. So that's also another thing to consider. Do we have any stats in the Muslim community? or maybe like a rough estimate on pornography usage.